Hey there, and welcome to the very first podcast episode of She Talks. My name is Jen, and I am the creator of what I envision to be a large community of women who will support, encourage, uplift, and celebrate each other. So what is She Talks, and how did it all come to fruition? Well, my belief is that every woman has a story, and that every woman needs to share that story, because every woman needs to hear it. I am using this platform to give women a voice. I think that as women, we hold a lot back, whether they are our fears, our challenges, our successes, our triumphs, and we put ourselves in the mindset of either not wanting to burden others or not wanting to brag. With She Talks, we are going to rip that mindset to shreds and we are going to link arms together and be the community of women that I feel the world needs. My vision for the She Talks podcast is that we become exactly that a community of women who share their stories with the world and create a safe place where nothing is judged and nothing is off limits. Each podcast episode will feature a different woman with a different story. It will be raw, unfiltered, honest, and real. So let's get started. First, a little bit about me. As I said, I'm Jen. I am a 43, almost 44-year-old mom of two living in Canada. My oldest is 10 and my youngest is almost 5. I have a potty mouth and a weakness for chocolate. I am mildly obsessed with essential oils, personal development, major fangirl right now of Mel Robbins, Rachel Hollis, and Gary Vee, and pushing myself to live my best life. I am a work in progress when it comes to consistency with exercise and healthy eating, and my greatest strength, in my opinion, is both my insane level of self-awareness and my commitment to my family. I have a 9-to-5 that I love, a side business that will one day be my 9-to-5, and a number of passion projects that will also one day come to light. But first up is She Talks and a high-level overview of my story, which I will cover in more detail in future episodes. But this will give you a glimpse into the roller coaster of my life since 2014 and why I felt She Talks was needed. So sit back, take a deep breath, relax, and enjoy the ride. So like I said, going back to 2014, I was pregnant with my daughter. Um, I found out late 2013 that I was pregnant. And that was after having some, some number of health issues in terms of not having an issue getting pregnant, but having an issue getting out of my first trimester. So when I found out that I was pregnant with my daughter, I wasn't as excited as normally you are when you pee on the stick and the line shows up because I was scared. I wasn't sure I was going to make it through um, another emotional roller coaster of of potentially a miscarriage. So I said to my husband that whatever happened with that pregnancy was going to be the last pregnancy. So I was either going to carry to term and have a beautiful, healthy baby, or I was not going to make it out of the first trimester as had happened previously. And then I was done. And we were just going to be a family of three. So my pregnancy was, um, how do I put this? It was awful. Uh, I did not enjoy being pregnant. I was sick the entire time. So from finding out I was pregnant in October, uh, just before Canadian Thanksgiving to New Year's Day, I did not get out of bed. And when I say I did not get out of bed, I missed my son's entire first term of primary. I didn't get to go to any school events. I didn't get to take him to school, pick him up, learn about his day, help him with reading or anything like that. I literally laid in bed with a bucket, uh, bottles of water, and I threw up all day, every day for the first trimester. Um... 
I had people when I would go to doctor's appointments that my they wouldn't recognize me at the doctor's office because I was so sick. I needed someone to be w- with me everywhere. And I legitimately only showered once a week because I knew that I needed to. And it took every ounce of strength and energy for me to do that. So the, the end of 2013 going into 2014 wasn't the best. Uh, some days I wish that the pregnancy would end because I felt awful. And some days I wish I could just have slept to the end so that the baby was here and I was good. The doctor told us at our early ultrasound that everything was good as they could see it, but obviously still a risk until you get to that 12, 13 week mark. And that if into the 13 week and beyond mark, things didn't improve that I would be hospitalized for the second trimester. So the expectation is you will be sick and lose weight in your first trimester. But if that carries into the second trimester, that that can be dangerous to the unborn baby as they're trying to develop. So luckily for me, I wasn't as sick, but I still every day was a struggle uh, for me. And, uh, but thankfully, in June of 2014, my daughter was born. And I had didn't have difficulty with the, my labor. Um, I was a scheduled C-section due to previous complications with the birth of my son. But she was born and my family of four was now complete. Um, throughout my pregnancy, over and above the stress of worrying about that going to term, I guess would be the best way to say it. Even when you're at the seventh month and the eighth month, you're always still worried about something happening when you've been as sick as what I was. But in May of 2014, so eight months pregnant, um, we had moved into a new home, which was about a half an hour from the community we originally were living in. And I was staying with my mom in between during the school week so my little guy could finish his first year of school where he started and not switched so, so close to the end of the year. So my son and I were staying with my mom through the week and then coming home on the weekend to our new home. And uh, my husband was away for... It was like a day training. So he was outside the city about an hour, an hour and 15 minutes. And I got a call that afternoon, which I believed was, you know, that time of day when the phone was ringing, I believed it was the school to let me know that potentially there was something wrong with my little guy. And it was a call from one of my husband's co-workers that there had been an accident at his training or an incident. And I didn't really have a lot of information and it felt a little bit confusing at that point. I wasn't really sure what was happening. And he wasn't on the phone. So I was just basically told not to worry that there had been an incident and that they were making their way back to the city to get him checked out um, at the emergency. And about 15 minutes later, I got another call to say they weren't going to make it as far into the city and that they were taking him to the local hospital where the training was. So being eight months pregnant was, you know, it's hard to stay calm and comfortable and relaxed, but at the same time, something didn't seem right. And trying to get information seemed, um, seemed to be a bit difficult. So fast forward uh, half an hour of pacing the floor and I found, uh, I got a call from the admitting nurse at the emergency at the, at the local hospital that he was taken to and was asking me like, what was his date of birth and who was his family doctor and, you know, was I his next of kin and all of this information and information that in my mind would have been asked to him. So I made the statement to the admitting nurse, like, why are you not asking him this information? To which I was told that he had lost lost his speech, um, had been vomiting, and was having a lot of pain and difficulty being able to see. 
So I made my way to that local hospital. My sister drove me. And when I arrived, um, he was resting comfortably, hooked up to a million and one machines, got a little bit more of detail in terms of what had happened during that incident, and then waited to see the doctor. The doctor diagnosed him with migraine and dehydration, which in the years that I had been with my husband leading up to this, he hadn't ever had a headache. So a migraine to me didn't really make sense. And it didn't really make sense to him. So the benefit of, I guess, or the silver lining of this happening while he was at work is that they were extremely diligent in terms of follow-up testing, making sure that he saw his family doctor and and what have you. So that was in May. Uh, He had that happen. So we dealt with that through the pregnancy. My daughter was born in June. Um, Some tests were done throughout the end of May and the beginning of June for my husband uh, to try to determine what might have caused this. And in July, he went to get his test results to which they said they had to do some more testing. And we didn't really have an answer. And that same day that he was told he was going to need more testing to determine what the issue was, my daughter seemed not to be feeling well. So she would have been three weeks old at this point. So she seemed not to be feeling well. I thought she was just fussy, cranky, clustering as they do. And, you know, it was also summertime at this point. So I just kind of thought, you know, maybe she was just a little bit of rhythm. He suggested that, you know, that based on how she looked and a little bit of how she was acting that I take her in to be checked. I resisted at first because I really thought, you know what, I'm a mom. I would know if something was wrong, et cetera, et cetera. He pushed a little harder for me to go. And so I took her into the local children's hospital that we have here. And within literally four minutes of us walking through the door of the uh, of the emergency I was moved to a trauma room with more nurses and doctors beelining around the corner than I could even remember how to count Uh, my daughter was put on a table Uh, her little onesie that she had on was cut off Uh, she was crying they had her on an oxygen mask no one was answering any of my questions I was freaking out was really like a really bad episode of Grey's Anatomy at that point. And so I stepped out of the room under the suggestion, strong suggestion of my mom to let me know that if I didn't get myself together, that they were going to probably give me something to sedate me and calm me down, or they weren't going to let me be with her. And so I paced the floors, waited a little bit, and then met with a doctor who at the time I didn't know what that doctor's background was, but then come to find out that he was a cardiologist and my daughter at three weeks old had a heart rate of 318 beats per minute and they had to stop her heart to restart it, to reset it so that it would beat at a normal speed. So for newborns um, and really any young children so when you think of like what should heart rates be and what have you so looking from newborn to the age that she is now they should be somewhere between 120 and 150 beats per minute Um, can be a little bit lower a little bit higher but she was diagnosed with what is called SVT and it is called supraventricular tracheida it is considered to be an immature electrical circuit in your heart that creates an imbalance because it is immature that the heart rate doesn't beat regularly it gets out of sync and then because it's out of sync and it can't reset itself the beats increase 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 so feeling the 
mom guilt that we all do with regards to the fact that I did not take her or I didn't want to take her really. I thought, you know, she would be fine. My automatic question to him was, well, what happened if I didn't bring her in? And he was fantastic in set terms of, but you did bring her in. She is here now. We have reset. And I was like, no, 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 I know. But what if I didn't? And I guess I needed that reality check, but I was told that had I not brought her in, then she would not have made it through another 12 hours. I would have likely found her in her bassinet and she would have, her heart would have just given out and passed away. Um, so that was the beginning of a week in ICU, um, heart, like cardiogram, echocardiograms, medication, complete monitoring. She was hooked up to more tubes and wires and machines than I could ever have imagined. So for any parent who's gone through that, it's the most helpless feeling you've ever been through and you just want to make it better. I couldn't hold her for a little bit. That was also pretty scary because of the machines. Uh, so we, we dealt with that. We continued to make it through waiting. So now we're into July, 2014. Uh, my husband has some more tests done and, um, I'm trying to think where we go to from, from that perspective. So we get through to September. He's still having, now he's having more frequent headaches. He's having some blurry vision. He's having some slurred speech. He's off in terms of behavior, but I couldn't really pinpoint. I just knew he wasn't himself, but assumed he was preoccupied. October of 2014, we were in a small car accident. So a fender bender, but nonetheless, something stressful. And the four of us were in the vehicle. So my daughter would have been four weeks old or four months old, sorry, at that point. Uh, my son would have just turned six. And so again, a little bit of a traumatic incident. No one was hurt um, from that perspective. So we were really lucky. And then going into November, we met with a neurologist who had done some testing for my husband. And we were told that he required surgery within 48 hours of that appointment or the chance of him living was slim to none. So obviously that created a tremendous amount of panic. Um, we didn't, we weren't really anticipating that. So what we were told is that he had what is called DAVF, which is dura arteriovenous fistula. And what that means is that it is a cluster of veins that become tangled. And these were sitting on the dura, so the hard part of his skull on the right-hand side, which as the blood is tangled through the vessels, it started to create more and more pressure in the back of his head. And it was pressing on the side of his brain that impacted speech and vision. So we were told that they were going to need to operate immediately. 5% of the population has this. There was no real way to determine if it was hereditary or if at some point he had a mild aneurysm that created the cluster and the tangling of veins, but they were going to need to operate. Um, so through that, we were told that any amount of force in terms of sneezing, vomiting, anything like that could potentially rupture those veins would have created an organ, uh, uh, an aneurysm and then he would have passed away. So we had to scramble to, you know, with a five month old and a six month old to get ready for surgery. Um, we had that surgery the beginning of December. It was to be a three to five hour surgery in which they would go up through the main artery in his groin, feed a tube all the way up into his head and 
release what is basically like a medical crazy glue to block off the pathway of that cluster of veins so that the blood would get rerouted and those veins would die off. Um, the surgery ended up being eight hours, so he was under much longer than what they had anticipated. Therefore, the recovery was not pleasant for him. And then it was determined that the surgery was not a success and they were going to need to do a second surgery. So um, the recovery in December was very difficult. He was on a tremendous amount of pain medication. So Dilata, uh, Valium, Vicodin, the whole lot of it, a tremendous amount of pain from where they had been in his head, still slurred speech and vision sometimes and, and so significant amount of headache. There could be no noise. And as you would all be able to imagine, those of you who have children with a six-year-old and a five-month-old, almost six-month-old, you know, there no, there's noise. So our goal was to get through Christmas because the next surgery wasn't going to be till February. But the goal was to get through Christmas, make it as normal as possible, because at that point, there was an op, an op, a possibility that he wasn't going to survive either up until the next surgery or the following surgery. So we did our best to make Christmas as good as we could. Obviously, him watching Christmas through a different set of eyes, thinking it might be his last one, not even 40 years old. Um, into February, we ha- he had his second surgery, which again was slotted for three to four hours. And we were told prior to that surgery that if that surgery was not successful, then he would require a full craniotomy, which basically means cutting a trap door in the back of his head and going in to attempt the veins that way. So we are now in February of 2015. So had the surgery, it was three and a half hours, told it was a tremendous success. The recovery from that, comparing that surgery to the first one was night and day. He was up walking around, feeling great, um, feeling like he was going to be able to go back to work. Um, not a completely different person, but just completely different recovery. That was uh, the end of February. In March of 2015, he went back to work and knock on wood, he's been great ever since in terms of not requiring additional surgery or anything like that. That that stage of in February or March, sorry, my mom had gone for some routine testing, um, mammogram and blood work and what have you, and a very small lump was discovered in her right breast that required her to have a lumpectomy, and um, and radiation and chemotherapy. So again, we sh- it was early detection. She had just retired. They were told her that this would be a blip in the radar of things that she was going to have to deal with. But again, because she was proactive with that piece of her healthcare, that this was going to be a routine procedure. She, she asked if she could do um, a mastectomy. They said no, like that was too invasive for how small the lump was. And that literally it was so small that it wasn't really anything to worry about. Uh, so she had her lumpectomy in March and had to wait till the end of April for her pathology results. So there was obviously some pins and needles and stress waiting around that. Uh, while 
All of this time, husband is back to work. Daughter is on heart medication three times a day, checking her her heart rate with a stethoscope at least twice a day. Um, anytime she would act out of sorts or feel sick, I would panic. Um, all the while, my little guy's just kind of riding the wave of the crazy family stuff that's been happening. Uh, we get to the end of April, and my mom's pathology results came back great. Uh, she went to the doctor and was told, enjoy your retirement. You're going to be great. They decided to do one round of radiation that they were scheduling for June just to be on the safe side, but at the same time wouldn't require chemotherapy. She had indicated through that that she still wasn't feeling her best, that she still felt some discomfort in her stomach. Um, they thought it was a stress ulcer. They had done some testing and thought that, you know, potentially the medication she had been taking or the stress of waiting for the results or what have you was was causing that, as stress can do, and that to give it a couple of days and, you know, and start to enjoy her retirement, make plans for herself with her grandchildren and be on her way. And so we were celebrating um, that Friday. And then that Sunday, she ended up in emergency with really bad pains in her stomach. And because she had just gone through the breast cancer, they did an ultrasound or an x-ray first, followed by the following day, which was June 1st, 2015, by an ultrasound and a CAT scan to which they determined that she had stage four pancreatic cancer that had already metastasized to the liver. So... Um, needless to say, we were shocked. Brain, or sorry, breast cancer and um, pancreatic cancer are not considered to be cancers from the same family. So she was a rare case in that she had two different types of cancer present in her body at the same time. They figure that the lumpectomy aggravated the pancreas when they performed that procedure and the symptoms basically presented themselves from the time that she woke up. So it wasn't nerves, it wasn't stress, it wasn't an ulcer, it was the pancreas and the issue she had there. So a devastating blow, obviously, because she had been given a clean bill of health three days before that. Um, she's the rock of the family, so we're all trying to now rally around and be the rock for her. The, the oncologist determined that they would not be able to do surgery because of where the tumor was located on the pancreas. But what they would do is they would do chemotherapy to shrink the spots that were on the liver and at the very least stop the growth of the tumor that was on the pancreas. And they felt that based on you know all indications and what they were looking to do, that it would slow the growth and probably give her a couple of years to live. Um, from that perspective, but knowing pancreatic, and for those of you who don't, it is one of the most aggressive forms of cancer. It typically doesn't present itself in terms of symptoms until it is already a stage four because it is tucked behind other major organs. So it's very hard to detect and there's not a lot of testing you can even do for it. So stage four and metastasize is a huge issue, but she had a great oncology team and they put a plan in place and we began that process in June. Oddly enough, she had an episode where her heart rate spiked to over 200 beats per minute. So she was taken to emergency where she herself, for the first time ever at 65 years old, was diagnosed with SVT, the same as my little girl. So at the, the positive was that I understood what that meant in terms of her and what she was going through and was able to ask some other questions. But in 65 years, she had not had this 
Um, but the stress of the cancer obviously created an episode. And I think the best way I would describe SVT, kind of going back to that for a second, is it's almost like a panic attack because when it's happening, it's very present. The heart rate is spiked and you're in the moment of it. But when it stops, if you're, if, it, if you're able to stop it on your own, which nine times out of 10, you're able to do, whether that's through deep breathing, a cold compress on your neck or on your forehead or what, you know, there's a number of different issues that you can, a number of different options of, that you can use. Um, it's like a panic attack. Like, and once it's over, you, it's gone. Like there's no, there's nothing they can do for it. So I was told by our cardiologist that if I was taking my daughter's pulse her heart rate and it was they said just bring her in if it went over 200 I was like I'll be here if it's over 150 but if that was the case that if I started to head towards the emergency because it was at say 200 and that I got there and they checked her and it was back down to normal they would just send her home there'd be nothing that could be done because her heart had reset so back to my mom she had had this episode Uh, She started her chemotherapy towards the end of June in 2015, and it was a week of chemo, a week off, a week off, and then a week of fluids, and then another round of chemo. So the chemo made her sick, as it does. She did not lose her hair, so this type of chemo, you don't lose her hair, but she was sick. She was uncomfortable. She had no appetite. She was very bloated, which again is part of the chemo, but is also because of the pancreas pushing on the other organs. So we got to the end of August. She fell and banged her head one day coming from home from the hospital. She felt good because of the fluids that they had given her, and she thought she had enough strength to get herself out of the car. She tried to get out. She slipped and fell on the concrete sidewalk and banged her head and had to go back to emergency and basically one whole half of her face was completely bruised. So that was another fear that we dealt with in that moment. And then a week later when she went in for her appointment uh, to to do blood work and um, a couple of different tests that they needed to do, her bilirubin and things like that before they started her chemo the following day. She was told that because of her counts and everything that the chemo essentially destroyed her liver. It didn't push it. The chemo didn't push itself through her body to to attack the spots on her liver. It essentially caused her liver to disintegrate. So they stopped her chemo and told her that she had double digit weeks to live. So as her children, we went to, my God, she has 10 weeks, to her being ever the positive and saying, that's also months. So I might get 10 weeks, but I could get 99 weeks. And the goal is to get to Christmas. So that was August the 27th that she was given that diagnosis and it was given to us as the family. Chemo was stopped, double digit weeks, but to also obviously get her affairs in order and what have you. September the 11th, um, so two weeks later, she asked for last rites. Um, we went over as a family. She decided that she wanted to be at home. We went through a bit of that process and they, the palliative care had come for a visit and they had determined that she was deteriorating very, very quickly and that she needed to be in a hospital bed and they couldn't get a hospital bed to our home or my mom's home as urgently as they needed. So they suggested that she go to the hospital and be admitted. Um, So we called an ambulance. Uh, My husband helped her out of the bed to use the washroom before they put her on the stretcher to take her. And we left and went to the hospital to follow there. She was admitted by six o'clock on 
the 11th of September and passed away just after midnight, uh, which would be September the 12th, 2015. So from double digit weeks uh, became actually only two weeks. So a huge blow to my family. Um, Again, she was the rock. She was the center of the universe. Everything went through my mom because of my mom, with my mom, and all of that. So that was for sure the hardest thing I've ever gone through in my entire life. Um, But you keep going and you have to figure it out. So we did a funeral. And um, a week later, my husband had to leave for a course for three weeks. And I was on my own for those three weeks with my kids. He had promised my mom that he would go to that course. And so that he did. He went to the course and did what he promised. So I was on my own. So that was definitely tough. So now I'm into October 2015. We unfortunately went through an extremely difficult battle with my stepfather with regards to my mom's will. um, As her will had been changed basically at the 11th hour and signed... um, My children's or my children's and my sister's child, their inheritance became signed over to my stepfather four days before my mom passed away, uh, which was unexpected and also something that was extremely difficult to process because one thing that my mom was known for was her love of family and nothing mattered more to my mom than her grandchildren. So that opened up a whole nother Pandora's box, if you will, of stress and a difficult time trying to figure out, one, how any lawyer would let someone four days before their death sign a new will, why my stepdad would have taken the inheritance of three young children who now not only had a grandmother, but now would not have a grandfather based on those actions, um, as they had all been very close with him. So that took us into October, November, first Christmas without my mom, obviously very difficult in December, um, some more legal battling with, uh, my stepfather into the new year, which caused a tremendous amount of grief and difficulty over and above grieving the loss of my mom. Uh, that didn't get resolved the way that we had hoped that it would or and the right thing was not done. So that's something that we've definitely carried with us every day since then. Uh, my sister and I were always close. We've definitely become closer since that time. The sad part of that is that there were a tremendous amount of people in the immediate family that were very vocal about supporting my sister and I through that battle. Um standing beside us and helping us to do the right thing and then when push come to sh- came to shove nobody was there uh not her sisters not her best friends and actually neither my husband or my sister's husband really went to bat for us so that made it a very very difficult time as well because you think that they would a- not only support us but that they would do the right thing for the children um and that they would honor the memory of my mom so that unfortunately did not happen But now I'm into 2016 and trying to build my life without my mom, who I spoke to her every day more than once, text messaged her every day, spent a tremendous amount of time with her. And now I had the complete opposite of that. So in July of 2016, uh, we decided to take a family vacation. And it was one that we had planned for the year before, but that we didn't take because I wanted to be home close with my mom in case something had happened. So we drove to... Ontario to stay with friends, but we stopped in New Brunswick. We stopped in uh, Montreal 
uh, or Ottawa, sorry, on the way through to go to Ontario to stay with friends. And then the plan on the way back was to do a couple of days in Montreal. And great trip was what everybody needed. It was absolutely phenomenal, relaxing, great, spend time with friends, just just what we needed. It was a great 10 days. And in that piece of the trip, my husband and my son uh, went on a four-wheel four-wheeling ride with um, another group that was with us. So there was a gentleman and his son, as well as my husband and son, and they went on a four-wheeler side-by-side and went on a ride. They weren't even gone two minutes. And the next thing you know, we heard screaming. My little guy at that point is almost seven, maybe almost eight, running back around to where the rest of the group of us were to say there'd been an accident, that my husband was bleeding, there was blood everywhere. And so we got up to the field to where we needed to go. The side-by-side had been flipped over with my husband on the bottom. So it flipped on its side. My husband was on the bottom. My little guy had been strapped in, obviously, in a seatbelt and with a helmet, as had my husband. My little guy was able to unhook his seatbelt, crawl up to the top, run back from a field in terms of where we had never been before to the back of the home to tell us that we needed to call 911, which we did. So we got... I got up to the field and the other dad had turned around to come back because he knew something had happened because they weren't behind them. Um, he didn't know if they were lost or what have you. He comes up to me and says, you probably shouldn't come up here. There's like blood everywhere. Like it's really bad. And I was like, no, I'm coming. Um, my husband was a complete mess. There was so much blood um, that he, his legs were covered in blood, his face um, all over his body. He had flies on him, unfortunately, because of the blood and the heat and everything we were going through. So an ambulance came, took him. They took my son. I rode with my son so that we could, cause he had to be with me. They took my husband lights and sirens, whatever code they used to say like life or death emergency. My husband had a concussion. His upper jaw was broken. His nose was broken he had a hundred stitches in his face they completely wrapped his head to put him inside the uh, ambulance so he looked like a mummy but they were able to see his teeth through the hole in his nose where he had had the damage so it was pretty graphic it was pretty gross um we thought he was gonna die I mean obviously so we get him to the hospital where we were uh, my son and I came in a separate ambulance. He did not, my son did not have a scrape on him. He didn't even have a red mark on him from the seatbelt, which he would have been hanging sideways. Um, the fact that he was able to get out as quickly as he did and unbuckle his seatbelt, we still don't know how that happened. Um, I often say that my mom was watching over him for sure. Um, they kept my husband overnight for observation where he had had the previous brain surgery, but there was a possibility that they were going to need to airlift him to the Toronto hospital for surgery, which thankfully did not happen. Um, so that's July of 2016. So you still with me, right? Like it's kind of crazy chaos. Um, just stress, 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 drama, 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 trauma, trauma, trauma. Um, that, so we'd had to drive back to Nova Scotia. So to drive from Nova Scotia to Toronto is a three-day drive. It's 18 hours with a two-year-old and a almost eight-year-old. So, and my husband drove. We shared the driving on the way up. Driving back wasn't going to happen. So we drove from Toronto to... Drummondville, Quebec. I drove the first day, got us into a hotel, 
got us situated. The plan to go through Montreal wasn't going to happen. The goal was just to get home. Um, my little guy at this point is absolutely terrified. His father looked like he had been beaten with a baseball bat. Um, he was not sick, but he was on a lot of pain medication. And there was a lot of buildup, obviously through a broken nose and what have you, that he needed to release fluid and things like that. So it was pretty traumatic. I had a two-year-old who didn't really know what was going on, but knew it wasn't normal. Um, but we made it home. We made it home safely. We were great. He was off of work for all of August and into September, um, went back to work. And then November of now 2016, coming back home from work one night, working night shift, came home. And we don't know if he fell asleep. We don't know if he blacked out. We aren't sure what happened because he doesn't remember. But he went off the road and wrecked his vehicle. Um, So again, another mild concussion. And was off work for a couple of weeks from that one. Um, The truck was a complete write-off. However, Honda, we love Honda. Um, The airbags deployed immediately. Uh, The Honda Assist, Link Assist, dispatched to police, local police right away. And they were on scene within, I believe, four minutes. He was able to pull himself out of the vehicle. He was a bit disoriented, but at the same time, he he was fine compared to the other things we had been through. And that was November, so he stayed off work for a couple of weeks. And that was, so far, knock on wood, the end of the trauma that he has gone through. And then into... Uh, 2017, we thought, okay, the worst is over. We've, we know we've gotten through it. Um, however, his father passed away, not unexpectedly, but it happened quicker than we had anticipated. We knew he was not well. Um, he had COPD. He was, uh, largely overweight and had, um, started to have organ failure and heart failure and what have you. And we knew he wasn't doing well, um, but there was no indication that he was going to pass away when he did. So that was left for us to to also figure out. And um, yeah, so that was a bit of a challenge for us as well. So that took us into March of 2017. And we really looked at kind of from 2017 till now, it's been trying to figure out how do you put life back together to create a new normal. There's been a lot of trauma. There's been a lot of stress. I have a 10-year-old who has tremendous anxiety, um, mostly when it comes to his dad or being like his dad getting in another accident or something happening or being in a vehicle. So if it's like raining out when we're driving at night, he's worried. If it's a snowstorm, he's worried um, to the point that he actually makes himself quite sick, Um, scared to go on a school bus. So when they go on a class trip, he wants me to drive him. So we've been trying to deal with that over the last little while. Because he was front and center for everything. So his sister almost died. His dad almost died. His grandmother did die. His grandfather, who was my mom's husband, was really close with him. And now he was completely removed. To his grandfather passing away. To another accident. You know, all kinds of stuff like that. So we've had a bit of a struggle with him. It's obviously significantly impacted our relationship in our marriage because there's been so much they do say that it can either tear you apart or pull you together I think it's in a bit of both um so that's that's a definitely a challenge that we face it's it's been a struggle I mean for sure I think one of the things that I have learned is that with a really good group of girlfriends you have the ability to 
to, to carry yourself on because we, we do, I do have a really great network of people that will support me for sure. Uh, my sister and I are extremely close as a result, which we always were, but really as a result of my mom being sick, we, we knew we had no choice because it was just going to be the two of us. Uh, my dad has been fantastic, um, through my mom being sick, even though they weren't together. And then, you know, through everything else that we've been through, he's done the best that he's could given the tools that he's had, um, over the years as well. So that's really been a snippet. I've struggled a lot with, um, by not having my mom to talk to and to kind of talk me off the ledge with different things. I find I worry about money a lot, um, when, when I need to and when I don't. So that's definitely interest. I didn't sleep for years, uh, which enter in my love of essential oils because that's really been tremendously helpful for me. And I'll talk about that in a, in a future podcast episode with someone who, who introduced me to essential oils and you know what her story is and how essential oils came into her life. She then recommended them to me. But um, I didn't sleep for the better part of four years. There were nights where I would watch my little girl breathe to make sure she'd make it through the night because I was scared to fall asleep and wake up and her heart be out of whack because I wasn't watching it, which is ridiculous. But in the moments that you're in them and taking going back to the flashbacks of the night that it happened, you feel like everything will just be okay if you keep watch. So I did that. So I didn't sleep. I obviously, I would literally lay in bed at night and I would try to fall asleep. And if I did fall asleep just from the sheer exhaustion of what my life had been, I would sleep for maybe an hour, hour and a half, and then I'd wake up and I wouldn't sleep. And I would go from my daughter's room to make sure she was breathing, that her heart was okay. The cardiologist said for me to check her heart twice a day. I honestly, honestly, no holds barred, probably checked it 10 to 12 times a day. So I would get up, I would go, I would take my stethoscope, Dr. Jen, go in, check her heart. And then I would go in and check on my little guy, just make sure he was covered over and what have you, because I knew he was okay, and come back in and just make sure that my husband was still breathing. And I did that every night for years, two years, three years, whatever it was. It really did all blend together after a while, but that's what I did. And how I functioned, it's a great question. I think you go on adrenaline. I think you go on, you need to survive um, because you have people counting on you. And I think you sheer will. Uh, for me, it was a lot of chocolate. Uh, my eating habits definitely suffered. I just, I, that's how I coped. Some people drink, some people do drugs. I eat chocolate. Um, I don't know that I would say that I hit a rock bottom. I mean, there was a ton of stuff that was going on around me that just pardon my French, but it was fucked. And I was always waiting for the other shoe to drop and not having my mom to go to. So when it was my little girl and it was my husband, as scary as those things were, I knew that whatever happened, tragic or otherwise, I was going to be okay because my mom would carry me and get me through. But then halfway through that, she was gone and I've had no one to carry me through. And I've leaned on my sister and she's leaned on me, but our grief is obviously very similar. So were we enabling each other through a bit of it or were we, you know, however we dealt with it, I don't know. But I didn't have the person that for 40 years helped me make sense of everything, taught me everything, guided me through everything, pushed me, 
um, called me on my shit, you know, like, I think that's one of the great things about the relationship that I have with my mom is that she could call me on my shit. And I could call her on hers, you know, some of that kind of stuff. So but I didn't have that. And my husband's background in terms of his childhood is extremely different than mine. Um, and without going into detail on that, because I'm sure there's still a lot that I don't even know in that sense. I was raised by love and he was raised to survive. So very different. And because of that, I don't think he has the ability or the understanding of what I needed in those moments because he's never had to process things that way. So for me, I felt very alone. I felt very isolated. I just basically went through the motions. I would not sleep at night. I would get up. I would get them ready, get them out the door. I would go to work. Thank God my work had been has flexibility and I, I was able to work from home. And it wasn't that I didn't want to get out of bed. But some days, I just really didn't want to be around people because you were always putting on a happy face. So... I got to a point where I needed to start to find the, the not the joy, because it wasn't even a depression. It was just really grieving and trying to make sense of how fucked up it was that my mom at the age of 65 was healthy one day and dead the next. And that's essentially what it was. Um, my mom didn't drink. My mom didn't smoke. My mom didn't eat red meat. My mom didn't, um, there was something else. When we got the pamphlet of when she had for pancreatic cancer, there's a bucket, a list of things. I think it was like, you were a male, you were over 70, you were um, African-American or African-Canadian, drank, smoked red meat. So if you, if you fell in any of those categories, you were higher risk for pancreatic cancer. So my mom was 65, female, white, didn't drink, didn't smoke, didn't eat red meat, and she had two different cancers at the same time. And was dead in less than 102 days or 100 days. I have to figure out what that math is. But the one thing that my mom did, and it's probably the one thing that throughout that piece of my mom being sick that my husband and I agreed on. The cause of her cancer to us, based on what we knew of her and her lifestyle, was that she drank a copious amount daily of Diet Pepsi, which is full of aspartame, which is poison. And I don't have to have a bunch of stats to throw at you and a bunch of research to prove that it's out there. You can go and you can read it and you can see it. And that's the only thing that my mom did to me that would have caused her body to basically turn on her. Um, so... You know, it's uh, it's a sad story in that sense. I mean, of all the things that we've gone through, my daughter is still here. Knock on wood, she's healthy, she's happy, she's getting ready to start gymnastics, she's a firecracker. She's so many pieces of my mom, um, which would be pieces of me because I am, my, I told a carbon copy of my mom, and she's a lot like her father as well. So she's she's doing phenomenally well, so she made it through. She's no longer on heart medication. We're actually not even followed by cardiology anymore. Um, and my husband, while he has been cleared from the surgeries that he's had in his concussions and what have you, and is deemed healthy through those follow-ups and what have you, I notice a difference. And I would say that there is a memory loss. 
I would say that there is definitely a disconnect in terms of some empathy um, and the ability to process just different information, I think. And I think that comes from a, a number of different things, but also from, you know, having a number of surgeries and then head trauma um, and surgeries to your brain. So you make it through. And what I started to do was when my girlfriend introduced me to essential oils so that I could sleep, it started me on a journey with essential oils, which I definitely will talk about in greater detail at some point. But it started to force me to look at self-care for me because I didn't, I didn't do it. And sometimes I'm still not really good with it. It's forced me to look at, okay, personal development because there can be a lot of negative headspace around woe is me. My daughter almost, my pregnancy was crappy because, and I had previous miscarriages. My husband is sick. My daughter is sick. My husband is sick again. My husband needs more surgery. Oh, now my mom is sick. My, um, but she's better, but no, she's sick again. Oh no, she's dying. And oh, there's an accident and your husband almost like all of that stuff. You can be very much like, whoa, what, hello, what did I do to deserve this kind of thing? So, uh, well, I don't believe that I put a ton of negative out there. I feel that I, in my mind, I believed I was being punished for something. I believed that I was missing something or that this was going to continue. And every time I thought that, okay, we we hit that three-month mark and something hadn't happened, then something would. So it was a constant state of fight or flight for three years for every three months. It was something. So I started to do personal development. Um, I've always been someone who's been really... I believe self-aware in terms of, you know, my strengths, my weaknesses and what have you, but I needed a bit of a reset and I needed to understand, okay, if I'm not going to have my mom to stand in front of me and say, you need to look after yourself. You need to take time for yourself. You need to, you know, the kids are going to be fine. You need to step away for a minute or you need whatever that was. She was always kind of that center point of making, putting things in perspective So it was like, how do I now teach myself to have that perspective? So the one that really, really stood out for me at first was Mel Robbins. The second one was Rachel Hollis. And and then the third one would be Gary Vee. And I'm really trying to be proactive and make sure that part of my self-care is listening to their podcasts, reading what content they put out, And just really trying to come from a place of positivity and know that it's not always going to be easy. It's not always going to work out the way that I want it to. People aren't always going to be who they say they are or who you hope they, who who you hope they them to be. Um, But shit keeps moving and life keeps going, and I feel that I have really good girlfriend. I have my sister. I have my really, really good girlfriend who gets my entrepreneurial side of my brain and has like on the weekend was like, okay, you need to get this podcast set up. Like we've been talking about it. You need to do it. I'm going to hold you accountable to it. And she's phenomenal. And then I have two other girlfriends that I just know that I can lay all my shit at their door and they've got me, whether that's to let me cry, it's to kick my ass. It's to send me a funny joke. It's whatever. I have them for that. And I'm very, very grateful. So as I, as I look at moving, she talks forward, I definitely will go into some of the details around my roller coaster ride and the tornado that my life was, um, to, you know, help shed light on things, 
in terms of, you know, what my daughter went through, um, what my husband went through and, um, and then just what we went through in general. So from that perspective, I, I want it to be able to share, but I, what I really want, whoever's listening, go back and listen to this again. Or, you know, if you have questions by all means, you know, let me know them. I just want to be really transparent and I just want whatever people to know that whatever you're going through, whatever you've been through, whatever you want to push yourself to, that someone else is, has gone through it, is going through it, or is about to go through it. And we can make it all a little bit easier by just sharing those stories and finding comfort in someone out there has been through what you've been through, is going through what you're going through, will go through what you're going through. And that to me is really important. And if I can inspire someone to open up that piece of their emotion and just say, hey, like, let's talk about this. Let me share this. Let me celebrate this. There's going to be tons of things that we're going to celebrate. I've started a consulting business with a friend of mine and it's going to be phenomenal. And I'm going to celebrate that because I want people to know that hard work you don't have to always do a nine to five. You can do a nine to five and have a side hustle. You can make it a side hustle. You can start a side bit. Like all of those things I really want to continue to tap into. Um, there's no topic I think that I wouldn't touch. I don't know yet unless it's presented to me and then I don't feel comfortable with it. Um, but it's really important to me that it be authentic. It be real. It be kind of in a way no holds barred. I mean, obviously I want to be respectful of of not offending people or hurting people. But again, this is a safe place. So that is my story to date in a nutshell. Knock on wood that nothing else uh, gets added to that bit of a timeline. I will write a book one day on it. I'm I'm definitely determined to self-publish something where I go, this is the my journey. This is where um, I started and then this is where I ended. And when I come on the other end of it, The vision I have is that She Talks is a very popular podcast with some really great women fueling that and pushing it forward with me, Um, that it turns into a conference that I can take across Canada and that I can, you know, be in front of people sharing my story and having other women share their stories as well. Um, And that my 40s, while they didn't start off to be the, the decade that I wanted them to be, that I'm honoring my mom and building a really amazing legacy for my kids in honor of her because I think that that was really important to her and that I can't right the wrongs but I can I can make sure that I do things right and that will be really important so I thank you all for sticking with me for the first ever she talks podcast I think I kept it to under an hour so I'm I'm thankful that uh, you stuck with me through all that so I apologize for any of the long-windedness And again, questions, comments, concerns, anything like that, send them my way and I will see you on the next episode.